Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode 27 of Quick Cuts, a plastic surgery podcast. On today's episode, we discuss cubital tunnel syndrome, so let's get started. And we'll start with a review of relevant anatomy. The ulnar nerve arises from the medial cord of the brachial plexus. It travels first in the anterior compartment of the arm, passes through the intermuscular septum approximately 8 centimeters proximal to the medial epicondyle, and enters the posterior compartment of the arm. At the elbow, it passes posteriorly to the medial epicondyle where it enters the cubital tunnel. It exits the cubital tunnel into the forearm, traveling between the flexor carpi ulnaris and flexor digitorum profundus as it moves distally towards the wrist. In the forearm, it provides motor innervation to the FCU and FDP to the ring and small. In the hand, it provides motor innervation to the interossei, the adductor pollicis, the deep head of the flexor pollicis brevis, and the hypothenar musculature. The ulnar nerve provides sensory innervation to the ulnar dorsal hand, the hypothenar eminence, the small finger, and the ulnar half of the ring finger. When we refer to cubital tunnel syndrome, we're describing a compression neuropathy of the ulnar nerve as it passes around the elbow. There are multiple sites at which the ulnar nerve can be compressed in this location, which we'll review from proximal to distal. Proximally, we have the intermuscular septum and the arcade of struthers, which is a fascial band connecting the medial head of the triceps to the intermuscular septum. We then have the cubital tunnel, which is the most common site of compression and is formed by walls consisting of the olecranon process and medial epicondyle of the humerus, the Osborne ligament, which forms the roof, and the medial collateral ligament and joint capsule of the elbow, which make up the floor. An anomalous muscle, known as the Anconius epitrochlearis, can also be present in this location causing compression. Distal sites of compression include the aponeurosis, heads, and fascia of the FCU and FDS muscles. We'll talk next about the evaluation and management of the cubital tunnel syndrome patient. In taking a history, you should evaluate for medical comorbidities that may confound your diagnosis, including diabetes, thyroid disease, and peripheral neuropathy. On focused history, you should determine the type and duration of symptoms. Patients with cubital tunnel syndrome will commonly report numbness, tingling, and sometimes pain in the ulnar nerve distribution, which can be intermittent or constant. Motor symptoms may include clumsiness and weakness with grip or intrinsic muscle strength. You should determine whether onset of symptoms is associated with positioning of the arm as patients commonly report that these symptoms are triggered or exacerbated by activities that require elbow flexion. It's also important to ask about any prior trauma to the elbow, as certain injuries such as distal humerus fractures or elbow dislocations can also produce cubital tunnel syndrome. On physical exam, you should perform a comprehensive hand exam. Observational findings are typically only present in advanced disease, and may include atrophy of the hypothenar muscles and interossei, as well as clawing of the small and ring fingers. You should evaluate the elbow for ulnar nerve subluxation over the medial epicondyle with flexion and extension. A sensory exam should be performed, specifically noting gross sensation, as well as two-point discrimination in the ulnar nerve distribution. A SEMS-Weinstein monofilament test can also be utilized. Motor testing can evaluate grip strength, Provocative testing for cubital tunnel syndrome includes the elbow flexion compression test, tenel percussion over the cubital tunnel, 
and the more recently described scratch collapse test. Patients may demonstrate Wartenberg sign, which is ulnar deviation of the small finger due to weakened adduction, and or Froment sign, which is flexion of the thumb IP joint during attempted key pinch to compensate for a weakened adductor pollicis. The diagnosis of cubital tunnel syndrome is primarily clinical. Electrodiagnostic testing, which includes electromyography and nerve conduction studies, is not required to make a diagnosis. In some scenarios, however, they may help to identify the level of compression and distinguish cubital tunnel from alternative peripheral nerve disorders. The first-line treatment for cubital tunnel syndrome is non-operative, including the use of splinting, NSAIDs, and activity modification. The surgical treatment of cubital tunnel syndrome is cubital tunnel release, which involves division and release of the possible sites of compression at the elbow. This can be performed as an in-situ release, where the ulnar nerve is left in its native position, or release can be combined with transposition of the ulnar nerve to decrease tension on the nerve while the elbow is flexed. Some surgeons will also perform medial epicondylectomy with their release. There is limited data regarding superiority of any one of these procedures, and the possible indications for each are beyond the scope of today's podcast. Notable complications of cubital tunnel release include injury to the medial antebrachial cutaneous nerve and recurrence of symptoms. And that ends our discussion on cubital tunnel syndrome. I hope everyone's continuing to enjoy the podcast. Feel free to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. As always, you can find my entire audio library along with other great online resources at theplasticsfella.com. For questions, suggestions, or feedback about the podcast, you can reach me at jakemarksmd at gmail.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at jakemarksmd. Thanks for listening. See you next time.